0: Wonder if you've ever thought about um, why we've spent the last eleven weeks going right from the beginning, um, right, from the beginning back in Genesis, to where we are today. It's the last bit of recorded history in the Old Testament, as we said. Um, maybe for some of you, I know it has for some of you, because I've spoken to you. It's frustrated you a little bit. We've gone quite quickly. Uh, maybe quite shallowly, you might think, through some of the books as we've looked at the big picture. You have to do that as you go through the big picture. Maybe you think your specific question you might have hasn't been answered. Uh, My parents are both history teachers, um, and so they've taught me to love it, to appreciate it, and to learn from it. Um, But is that all we've been doing? Just looking at history? Well, partly, of course, we have been doing that. It's been great to see a big picture. I don't know about you, I've enjoyed seeing the big picture uh, of what's gone on from creation until our passage today, right at the end of the Old Testament. But um, history always has a purpose, and it does have a purpose. The um, 14th century Italian historian as he go on his Wikipedia page, he was basically everything. They seemed to be that then, historian, philosopher, all sorts. But Machiavelli, he said this. He said, whoever wishes to foresee the future must consult the past, for human events ever resemble those of preceding times. Whoever wishes to foresee the future must consult the past. So partly as we look backwards, we can learn about how to live today, can't we? But we don't just preach. We don't just look at these stories to impart knowledge, to teach history. We see in Jeremiah 9, and we see it throughout the Bible, that the Bible stories exist for us not to just enjoy them. They're great stories, some of them, but not to just enjoy them as history. Bible enjoys exist so we may enjoy God. What has God been doing in the last 11 weeks? What did he do in all these stories we've looked at? What was he doing when he brought the 10 plagues on Egypt? What was he doing when he parted the Red Sea? What was he doing as he acted time and time again in this story of salvation, which should be told millions and millions of times? Well, the answer is in verse 10. Look down me in verse 10. It says here, "You made a name for yourself, which remains to this day." And that story, which Nehemiah is talking about, happened thousands of years before Nehemiah wrote. And we're thousands of years after Nehemiah. What is the point of history? What's the point of looking at this Bible overview? God is making a name for himself. He's telling us what he's like. He's telling us who he is so that we can know him, so that we can trust him and so that we can enjoy him. And this is what we want as we preach for the elders, as we decide what to preach, we look at it. this is what we want, that we may know God, that we may trust God, that we may enjoy him and live in friendship with him for years and years and years to that great time when he will return. And some of you know this, some of you in this room, many of you in this room know and experience this friendship yourselves, don't you? You know that friendship with God, you know that. Others of you here maybe know about God. You maybe know some of his rules, you maybe know some of his stories, maybe some of these stories which we just read through there as Ezra, who was reading that prayer, would have reflected on all that's gone on, you know some of the stories and maybe you know some of the things Christians do, maybe a Christian's invited you here today like Bible reading, church That's what you hear today, prayer and our goal for both of you whether you call yourself a friend, a follower of God or not is the same as God's aim here in his Bible and in this series it's always the same, the universe exists, history exists, Bible stories exist, Nehemiah 9 in all its glory exists so that you might meet the living God and know him and enjoy him. That's our prayer as we come to the end of this series. But getting more specific today, we come to a confession. It is a confession in the the normal sense. It's also a confession of faith, as we see, a confession of what God has done. And we see here, in some ways, the Israelites have done what we've done. Read down with me at verse 3, that sets the context for it. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of a day and spent another quarter in confession and in worshipping the Lord their God. I worked it out. Um, this 11 weeks, 12 weeks I think we're in now, 12th week of this series, which is roughly a quarter of a day. Um, depends who's preaching, I'm slightly longer than most of them, so slightly longer than a quarter of a day maybe. Um, so I make no apologies that today's reading was quite long. <laughs> They stood for a quarter of a day. And now we get their response. They did it previously as well. They read from the law. They had not seen the law for years. They read from the law and they responded and they responded initially in weeping. And then Ezra said, no, now's the time for celebration. Chapter 8, I read Ezra and Nehemiah, it's great. He saw them called to celebration and praise. And now we see the law read again and we get this wonderful summary of what we've looked at together in the last 11 weeks. And it caused them, as they read from the law in verse three, to be in both parts in awesome worship, a fear of God as Langs just prayed, and in deep confession. As I said, this is the last book of history in the Old Testament. If you picked up your Bible, looked at the contents, you may think that seems silly, and it is a little bit silly. The Bible's not necessarily ordered in in order of a history, it's ordered in different ways. Um, But we've seen Ezekiel last week um, was speaking to people who were in exile. They were no longer in God's land. They were no longer in God's place, but they were under Babylonian rule. And that was bad. Remember God's promise to Abraham that he would make them a great nation. It's pretty tricky when you're not living all together in one place and not ruling it yourself. And then a few years after Ezekiel, we get the Persian empire. Uh, The Persian empire overthrows the Babylonians. We get Cyrus, king of Persia, uh, who also then, well, no, he doesn't also, he allows some of the Jews to return to Jerusalem. He allows some of them to return to rebuild the temple and rebuild the walls of the city. And it's in this setting we get Ezra and Nehemiah. We may well do a series at some stage on Ezra and Nehemiah. We can look at it in depth. But now at the end of this book of Nehemiah, the temple's been built after much opposition much opposition. The walls of the city of Jerusalem have been built after loads of opposition and the people gather to hear God's law read. And we see them here don't we, fasting and wearing sackcloth and they confess their sins and the sins of their ancestors. And it's worth noting the context afresh of his fasting and prayer. Yes they've returned, yes they've built the wall, yes in some ways things are good, but right at the end of verse 37, we'll look at it at the end, but it says they're in great distress. We are in great distress right at the end. This is the context for their prayer. This is the context for their fasting. They're slaves. They're without a land. They're troubled. And maybe for many of you listening here today, you may go, well, that's me. I'm in great distress. And if that is you, listen in and see what the Bible shows us to do in times of great distress. It's the longest prayer in the Bible here. As they confess before a faithful God the history of a faithless people. And whenever someone prays in public, Lance just did it now, I've just read out a prayer in public. Uh, The aim is we're encouraged to be drawn in, encouraged to offer our our amen, our I agree to this prayer. And that's what this prayer does for us today, to see ourselves is the aim in this story of God's people. Yes, this is history, but it's a history which continues today. We're meant to reflect on how we're all made of the same stuff, part of a long line of sinners, of rebels. That's the reason they're in such distress. But more than that, this prayer wants us to see that our God is the same God. But as we've said, we might not just learn who he is, but we might delight, enjoy and worship him. That's, that's where we are. Let's dive into the content of the prayer. Firstly, we're going to see our God is a gracious God. And, and do keep your Bibles open because we're going to look through it. Uh, it goes right back to the beginning of this prayer. You'll have noticed it. In some ways, it's, it's massively fitting because it's just, if you've not been here for 11 weeks, you've now got the whole summary of it. It's great. We see firstly, God who is the creator God, the one who it says, "Made the heavens, even the highest heavens and starry host, the earth and all that is on it. Verse six. And it acknowledges that God is the one who gives life to everything and the multitudes of heaven worship you. And this is, This is the base principle for all of us. God created all. That's what we believe. We believe God created all and it was good. It's where all life flows from. It's where our faith as Christians flows from. The belief and the understanding that God created everything, that he is in charge. This is his story. This is his book. And in this prayer, it's all about him. The story of the Bible is all about God. And he's at the centre and he kicked it all off. We then see it flow through Um, where we flowed through as well in some ways. We get mention of Abraham. We're reminded of a covenant, the promises God made to Abraham. He promised to make Abraham a great nation and he did that. Ezra then goes on to remember the exodus and how God brought his people out of Egypt, how he looked after them, how he led them, how he performed miracles for them. We're reminded of the law, as we were a few weeks ago with Lanx, of the law being given on Mount Sinai. But, but the striking thing, and you maybe will have heard as I, I read it, emphasised, is again and again is God is in control and he's acting for the good of his people. Just look with me again. I'm going to skip through it, but, but scan it with me from verse 5, verse 6 onwards. Look at me again at all the times we see God act here, all the times we see you. They're talking to God. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens. You give life to everything. You are the Lord God who chose Abraham. Your, you found his heart faithful to you. You kept your promise. You saw the sufferings of your ancestors. You heard their cry. You sent signs and wonders. You made a name for yourself. You led them in the wilderness. You spoke to them. You gave them the law. You gave them bread. You brought them water. You, 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 you. It's all God. It's all his story. He wills and it is done. This story is truly his story. History. His story. And in this prayer in Nehemiah 9, the people have spent six hours reading the Bible. They begin by remembering God and who he is and what he has done. And it causes them to praise. To praise him for his acts. Right at the start, blessed be your glorious name. May it be exalted above all blessing and praise. I wonder how often do we stop and do this. If we look back not only look back on the story of the Bible, and that's partly where we've done it over the last three months, to look back over the story of the Bible and see God at work. Our prayer is it causes us to praise. How often do you do that in your own life? To not focus just what on what isn't working. We can so often do that, can't we? I'm a complainer. We focus on what's not working on what's not going well. But how often do we just deliberately try and remember God's goodness? If you follow him today, the, the greatest news in the world, he's saved you. How often do we meditate on that ahead of troubles at work? It's, it's pitiful in comparison, isn't it? But we do it so often. How often do we meditate and, and ponder the blessings he have, has given us? Maybe in family, for some of us it might be hard, but for some of us it'll be good we've got houses over our heads generally, praise God, employment for many, friendships, real blessings. And then maybe remember some of the action of God in many different ways in our life. And the longer you've been here, the more you've got to remember, which is sometimes a good thing or a bad thing. Maybe you can remember when he's helped you in a really difficult time or in guiding you in a big decision. It's what the Israelites do here. They remember and it causes them to praise Because our God acts in our lives, he's not distant, he acts, he's in control and he's good and worthy of praise. Secondly, we then see our God as a merciful God. Grace, often defined as a a free gift we do not deserve. Mercy, not getting the punishment we do deserve. And did you notice it with me, verse 16, we've seen all these time God has acted, all the time he's looked after his people, but then shockingly after all the stories of God's goodness, we get hit with verse 16 and one again, these glorious buts. But they, our ancestors, became arrogant and stiff-necked and they did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked. And in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. And as we went through these verses, we see this pattern repeat itself again and again and again. God's awesome grace on one hand and his provision and then the people's rebellion. In verse 25, we, we see before that a description of God's care and concern in their wandering years in the desert. We see it say they reveled in your great goodness. They reveled in your great goodness. Verse 26, but they were disobedient and rebelled against you. Verse 27, God's goodness again as he rescues his people from their enemies. Verse 28, but as soon as they were at rest, they again did what was evil in our sight. And it goes on and on and on and on. If I have more time, the pattern repeats up again and again and again. Back to my history teaching parents. they would be proud of me for remembering stuff. Churchill, Winston Churchill, he said this. He said, they who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Stephen Hawking. We spend a great deal of time studying history, which, let's face it, is mostly the history of stupidity. I wonder how people will look back on 2019 in England. And that's a pretty accurate summary, isn't it, of history? And it's pretty accurate of what we've seen in the last 11 weeks. We've looked at the Israelites in the last few weeks, and if you're like me, you've gone idiots a number of times. Fools. You've gone, God literally, saved you on a giant boat Noah literally saved you on a giant boat and yet you still then deliberately ignore him and rebel moments later idiot you literally had God save you by parting the red sea Israelites and yet you were still grumpy and rebelled moments later you had God appearing on a mountain to Moses which you could kind of see and yet at the same time you still built yourself an idol of a calf to worship instead idiots. As in, we've all gone that, we've tutted and we've gone. seriously, what are you doing? But the Bible is clear, we're all like them. <laughs> Arrogant and stiff-necked, it says, the same words used in verse 10 about the Egyptians are then used again about the Israelites. Those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And the Bible says we can't learn from it, because by our nature we are rebels, we're fools, we're disobedient rebels unresponsive and unsubmissive to God. We see, and I don't know, look in your own heart and I just looked at my own heart this week and it's not often pretty, we see God's goodness one minute and the next minute we're ignoring him, doing things how we want, ignoring his good advice, ignoring his comfort and sticking two fingers up at him and running the opposite direction and as we look at the Israelites here, how they're so forgetful aren't they, so rebellious, We're meant to see how perverse sin is, to turn our back on this God of such grace When we looked at the Day of Atonement, uh, we talked about how in order to get a right view of God we need to have a right view of ourselves Do you have a right view of yourself and your sin? Notice the context of this prayer, they've read from God's law They've been reminded of all that God has done throughout history to his people All the goodness, all the care, all the concern And their response was to turn up, fasting in sackcloth and ashes, in utter confession. They're in great distress because they deserve it, because of their sin and their rebellion. They're in great distress because the Lord has brought it on them. Because they've rightly seen that they deserve this. They've rightly seen that their sin is awful. And I wonder how often do we stop and respond like this when we come face-to-face with the awesomeness of God and the awfulness of our sin. Sometimes I think, I speak for myself, but I presume it's similar for the rest of us, I think our, our confession of sin sounds a bit too much like a husband saying to his wife, I'm sorry I forgot to take the bins out. I think it should be more like a husband saying to his wife, I'm sorry I've had an affair. You've loved me wonderfully, perfectly, more than I ever deserved. And I can't believe how foolish I've been. I'm so sorry. To turn our back on the God of extraordinary grace and not treat that grace and that mercy lightly. Because we look down at verse 17. We've seen their rebellion. They became stiff-necked in their rebellion, appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. But the prayer goes on, you are a forgiving God gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in love. Therefore, you did not deserve them, even when they cast themselves an image of a calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt, or when they committed awful blasphemies. Because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them." Isn't that our story? You're a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in love. Again and again we see the Israelites not get what they deserve, they get mercy. Verse 20, God gives them his spirit to guide them. Verse 21, he provides and sustains his people. Verse 22, he fulfills his promises to Abraham and we see the people revel in his great goodness. This is God, this is the God of the Bible. The God of the Old Testament, who is the same as the God of the New Testament, it's sometimes an argument said the God of the Old Testament is different to the God of the New Testament. He's exactly the same. Did you notice how many times he was called compassionate here? It's about six or seven times. Read it again later. How many times we see him care for an act to look after his people? Friends, this is our God. We've sung of 10,000 reasons to praise him. We were challenged earlier weren't we to practice thanksgiving, to practice praise, to remember God's goodness to us so maybe tonight could I encourage you what we said to do over chat just now to do again maybe when you, when you eat together, maybe just even now when we eat at the back what's something in which you're thankful for for God this week? There will be something, it may have been a rubbish week, there will be many things you can still be thankful for. I know it may have been hard but I'm sure there's something of his goodness and mercy you can bring to mind. Notice there's been no complaint in this prayer yet. We don't get there right till the end. Nothing at all of complaint, there's no complaint in this prayer at all to be fair, but nothing even of asking God. They're just praising God as they remember what he's done in their great distress. Our God is so gracious, he's so merciful and thirdly and finally, our God is a patient God. Verse 26. They were disobedient and rebelled against you. They turned their backs on your law. They killed your prophets, think of Ezekiel, prophets of the Bible. They killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. They committed awful blasphemies. So you delivered them into the hands of their enemies who oppressed them. It's worth just saying there: God delivered his people to their enemies, not to punish them, but to ultimately draw them back to himself. And so it goes on. When they were oppressed, they cried out to you. From heaven you heard them. And in your great compassion, you gave them deliverers who rescued them from the hand of their enemies. We see it. A pattern goes on. Verse 28 and verse 29. It continues. You warned them in order to turn them back to your law. But they became arrogant and disobeyed your commands. They sinned against your ordinances of which you said the person who obeys them will live by them. Stubbornly, they turned their backs on you, became stiff necked and refused to listen. And look at verse 30 with me. This is glorious. For many years you were patient with them. By your spirit you warned them through your prophets, yet they paid no attention. So you gave them into the hands of the neighbouring peoples. But in your great mercy you did not put an end to them or abandon them, for you are a gracious and a merciful God. We're into some of the passages and books being recounted there, which we haven't looked at. The prophets who again and again warned of God's, Judgment, called them to return to worship God, and again and again and again throughout the whole of the Old Testament we see God's patience. He listens to their cries, his great compassion. Maybe this is something you need to hear today, no matter how far away from God you are, no matter what you've done, no matter how many times you've done something or how heinous your sin or rebellion might be in your mind, No matter if you've never followed God, you can cry out to him. He will listen and show you compassion. He is not like us. If somebody rejected me again and again and again, I would go, I'm done. I really, well, I pray I wouldn't, but I probably would. God is not like us. And verse 31 could potentially sum up this whole series. The whole Bible, your story too, but in your great mercy. You did not put an end to them or abandon them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. I wonder if he had a thought. He could have, could have stopped after Adam and Eve, couldn't he? <laughs> he really could have. It could have been a very short story and we wouldn't be here to read about it. He could have put an end to them. He, they deserved that. He could have abandoned them, but he is patient, he is gracious, and he is merciful. The people in Nehemiah 9 have read God's law, they've had it taught and they're reminded of God's compassion and his grace and they've praised him. Maybe this evening as you go home, as you reflect on the last few months of this series or this is your first time, this talk, what have you seen and remembered of God in these last few months? Chat about it around the table. In his great mercy he did not abandon them or put an end to them for he is a gracious and merciful God. Then as the prayer closes we see that the people have seen God correctly and now they have seen themselves correctly as they've meditated on God and what he's done. Verse 33 verse 33 comes after the first and only request in this prayer the the request is that God remembers them in their distress and we get verse 33 it says in all that has happened to us you God have remained righteous You have acted faithfully whilst we acted wickedly. As we said earlier, we see ourselves most clearly when we see God clearly. We see his greatness and we see our folly and it causes us to pray like these people did. They made no excuses for their sin. Do you notice that? They just stopped and confessed. When we see God and ourselves correctly, it's like putting on a wonderful pair of glasses. Seeing the world, how it truly should be seen. I saw a glorious video last night. You may have seen it doing rounds on social media. It's glorious. Search for it. A, a teacher in America, he was teaching his science class about being colorblind. And in his class was a boy who was described by his mum as being incredibly colorblind. Don't know what that means. Let's go black and white for the sake of imagination. And he produced for him this special pair of glasses. And you watch the video and it's amazing, the boy puts the glasses on and for the first time he sees the world in colour And his response? 12 year old boy let's say He cries and then he laughs He cries and then he laughs for a minute, seeing the classroom around him And for the people here, for us, as we see God who he truly is As the Israelites saw God for what he truly was we cry, we cry as we see ourselves and we see our sin, as we see our rebellion, we cry as we see how we've treated the glorious God, the creator God and we laugh and we praise him in awe of what he has done, we cry and we laugh as the Israelites did. So that's it, that's 11 weeks, 12 maybe in the Old Testament and where are we? Well, as we close, flick to me to verse 36 and 37. But see, we're slaves today, slaves in the land you gave our ancestors so they could eat its fruit and the other good thing it produces. Because of our sins, its abundant harvest goes to the kings you placed over us. They rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please. We're in great distress. It's a bit of an anticlimax, isn't it? We get to the end and God's people are still predominantly in exile. They're not in the land which was promised them. They're still idiots. Chapter 11, 12, 13 of Nehemiah, talk of Nehemiah's faithfulness and the people's rebellion. And after this prayer, they're they're still foolish rebellion. It's a real anticlimax and we're left thinking, is that it? We've seen this cycle of God's goodness and God's sin and we know that so readily in our own lives. And if you're like me, you go, What's the solution? Do I just need to resolve to be better and then I won't be like them? A bit like the people do in chapter 10 <laughs> here. Well, no, there's two major problems with that. As, as we've looked in history, as we look into our own lives, we see that repeated history of failure. That's what sin does. And the other problem is worse. Did you notice it in verse 33? In all that has happened to us, you've remained righteous You have acted faithfully whilst we have acted wickedly. All of the hardship, all of the distress, all of the slavery is just. God dealt rightly with Israel. God's judgment was right and it always is. So at the end of the Old Testament we have two problems. God hasn't acted yet to prevent this cycle of disobedience which brings judgment. So it keeps happening forever and ever and ever and ever. And secondly, God hasn't acted yet to deal with his righteousness in mercy. He hasn't yet permanently dealt with the right anger of sin so we can have no fear that this mercy might run out. The story is not complete. Well the last words of the prophets in the Old Testament, the actual last book of the Bible of the Old Testament is from Malachi. It's a prophet operating at the same sort of time as Nehemiah and he said this as the people asked where is God as they were in this cycle again and again and again and again where is our God and he says I will send my messenger who will repave the way before me the last message of the prophets and it's pertinent this Christmas time is he's coming the one who's going to make it all right the one who can finally end this cycle of sin is coming the one who's coming we're going to look at him next week and over Christmas. The whole story has led to this point. Here's a timeline I used in junior church. God made everything, Adam and Eve sinned, God promised a savior, God's people wait. That's where we've been for about eight weeks, God's people wait. And it would still be hundreds of years from Malachi and from Nehemiah until Jesus came, a time of waiting. But when he comes, this Jesus is the same God we've just seen the same God who we've been reminded of today, this God of compassion and grace and mercy. Jesus whose compassion is seen again and again and again on earth, and especially seen on the cross as he dies, as he takes the punishment we deserve, showing us utter mercy, as he's done throughout history, as he ends that cycle once and for all. So as we come to the end of the Old Testament, what is our response? What is your response as you reminded of who God is and what he's done? The people of Nehemiah, serious confession. They cried and they laughed, they cried and they laughed as they saw their utter weakness and their sin. Remember Bible stories, they don't exist for us to just enjoy them as history. Bible stories exist so we may enjoy God. This story is all about him, may we enjoy him. The forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in love.